Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week, we joined the Doctor and Sarah Jane as they attempt to return to London five minutes after they left Loch Ness, only to end up on the planet of evil cues unsettling music. We will be discussing the Doctor, <laughs> the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So, as always, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now, though, I will hand over to Paddy for the story recap. Part 1. On the far-off jungle planet Zeta Minor, an elderly man places an improvised nameplate on a freshly covered grave, which is one of many outside a prefabricated structure. He uses an ocular device to scan the sky and then hurries back inside the structure. He radios a pair of other men who are conducting an experiment on a group of crystals in a large cave and tells them to come back to their base immediately as night is approaching. One of them, Baldwin, urges the other one, Professor Sorensen, to pack up their gear so they can get back to the base before night falls. However, the clearly erratic Sorensen refuses to leave as he says they have found a rich mineral vein and if they go now then it will disappear claiming the planet is alive and will hide it from them. Baldwin pleads with him to no avail and then leaves when Saracen tells him to go. Back at the base, the elderly man is attacked by an unseen entity and vanishes from sight. Baldwin makes his way through the jungle, taking care to avoid the dangerous flora on the planet. He arrives back at the base to find the old man gone, and he too is attacked by the unseen entity. He manages to activate an alarm before fading from sight. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, Sarah Jane confronts the Doctor over the fact that he has not been able to control the ship as he had earlier predicted. The Doctor sheepishly says that they have travelled 30,000 years into the future, but before Sarah Jane can give out to him, they are interrupted by an alarm from the jungle planet. They exit the ship and start to look around using a signal locator. As they make their way through the undergrowth, Sarah Jane suddenly stops, becoming transfixed when she spots something moving in the jungle. Up in orbit, a ship approaches the planet, and its second-in-command, Vyshinsky, tells the crew that this is the furthermost planet on the edge of the known universe. The captain, Salomar, orders Vyshinsky to prepare an away team to investigate the planet. Vyshinsky reminds him that it is against protocol, but Salomar says their energy and fuel reserves are too low to do an orbital scan. Down on the planet, the Doctor comes back for Sarah Jane, who tells him about her strange experience, but says she's okay now. He shows her a tool he found, and they continue on through the jungle. They eventually come across the base and see a desiccated corpse of the elderly man outside it. They go in, back inside the base and the doctor says it seems to have been empty for months. He theorizes what happened and says they need to go back to the TARDIS to fetch some equipment to repair the power system. Sarah Jane offers to go herself whilst the doctor gets started on the repairs. After she goes, he enters another room and finds Baldwin's corpse in a similar state to the one outside and realizes that Sarah Jane could be in danger. Sarah Jane makes it back to the TARDIS, but looks around as she feels that she is being watched. She then goes inside, and a short while later, Vyshinsky and the other members of the away team appear. They inform Salomar of their discovery, and he orders them to attach a matter transfer device so that it can be beamed up. After it goes up, Sorensen enters the clearing, and an amazed Vyshinsky asks how he managed to survive for so long. Sorensen evades the question, and tells him instead about his discoveries during his survey of the planet. Vyshinsky asks about the other members of the team, and Sorensen says that he can lead them back to the base, but again refuses to give any concrete information about the rest of his team. They arrive back at the base to find the Doctor standing over Baldwin's corpse, and Vyshinsky tells him to stay back. Up on the ship, Sarah Jane emerges from the TARDIS into a quarantine chamber, 
and she sees Salomar and another crewman, Morelli, observing her. She suddenly has difficulty breathing, and Salomar says it is an oxygen trap, but then turns on the airflow. He goes to call Vyshinsky when he spots her holding the tool the doctor found earlier, which is actually from the base. He gets through to Vyshinsky, who tells him about the capture of the doctor and the state of affairs at the base. Salomar tells him to keep the doctor prisoner whilst he interrogates Sarah Jane. She tells him about receiving the distress call, but he is sceptical of her story due to Zeta Minor's location within the universe. Sarah Jane tries to stammer out an explanation as to how she and the doctor arrive, but she's interrupted when Salomar gets a call from the bridge waiting to know if they should land or not. Salomar orders the ship to land so he can go to see the doctor himself. The ship lands near the base, and Salomar and a few more crew go inside to speak to Sorensen. He recounts the fate of each of the survey team, saying that they were killed by one by one during the night by some unseen entity. Salomar orders the doctor to confess or be tortured and has him sent to join Sarah Jane. Two members of the away team, Ponty and Dehan, return from conducting a sweep of the surrounding area and say that they have found no signs of life anywhere else, which only further convinces Salomar that the doctor and Sarah Jane are behind things. In their cell in the base, Sarah Jane points out that the power is low in the base and the magnetic locks on the window are weak so that they can escape. However, after they escape from the structure, they watch as a strange glowing red translucent creature approaches them from the jungle. Part 2 A sentry appears and fires at the creature, drawing its attention away from the Doctor and Sarah Jane, who uses the distraction to escape. The creature attacks the sentry, causing his body to vanish, and the creature leaves as his screams draw the attention of Ponty and Tahan, who come to investigate. They go back inside the structure to get some torches, but after they leave, the sentry's body reappears in the same desiccated state as the others. They go inside where Salomar and Vrishinsky are discussing a power failure and temperature drop that happened at the same moment of the attack. Ponty tells them what happened and they go to check the cell to find the Doctor and Sarah Jane gone. In their hiding spot, Sarah Jane reveals that seeing the creature reminded her of her earlier experience in the jungle and says that it felt like she was trying to be drawn out of her body. They emerge to take a look around at the body when suddenly floodlights come on and an alarm sounds and Ponty and a squad of guards start to chase them through the jungle. Ponty goes back to bring Salomar and Vyshinsky out to take a look at the sentry's body. Salomar orders the Doctor and Sarah Jane to be recaptured so that they can be punished. He then sends for Sorensen so he can take a look at the body to help with finding out the cause of death. In the jungle, the Doctor and Sarah Jane take cover when they hear something approaching. They watch as some of the undergrowth moves and a strange crackling sound fills the air in the same way as it did earlier when the creature approached them. They emerge once things quieten down and the doctor says that they should be safe as daylight is approaching. They then hear the approach of a remote drone sent from the ship and take cover as it passes before continuing on, with the doctor talking about the time he met Shakespeare. Back on the ship, Sorensen returns from examining the sentry's corpse, and Salomar says that all of them died due to the same type of massive dehydration. Sorensen again seems to be not concerned with the loss of life, and instead says that everything should be focused on his discovery, a new perpetual energy supply. Morelli interrupts, saying that the drone has found the Doctor and Sarah Jane, and Salomar orders a group of guards to capture them. Sorensen insists that they recover his equipment and samples instead, but Salomar refuses, saying that he has his orders. Sorensen then goes with the hand to collect some of the samples from the structure, and tells him that a small amount of the material he discovered could power their home planet for centuries. He tells the confused the hand that the full exploitation of Zeta Minor's resources could power their world nearly indefinitely. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Sarah Jane enter a large cave with a pitch-black pool in the middle of it. They begin to examine the pool, but are momentarily distracted by the arrival of the drone. 
They turn back to the pool and they note that there is no reflection coming from it, nor is there any reaction when the doctor throws a stone into it. However, Ponty and the other guards show up and they hold them at gunpoint. Ponty orders them to be searched and he goes to help the guards searching Sarah Jane. As he holds her, he suddenly screams out in pain and falls back into the pool, completely disappearing. The doctor orders everyone to keep back from the pool, saying that they are interfering with the natural laws of the planet. They are brought back to the ship where Vyshinsky is warning Salomar not to run afoul of Sorensen due to his connections with the government and elite scientific circles of their home world. The doctor says that he wants to help them, but Salomar refuses to listen to them. Vyshinsky says that they will be allowed to speak after their interrogation, but Salomar says that if they refuse to cooperate, they will be killed. The doctor reluctantly agrees, and after Salomar finishes his accusations, he tells them that they need to listen to him as they are all in great danger. He explains that Zeta Minor is at the nexus of where their universe and the antimatter universe meet. Salomar thinks that he is lying, but Vyshinsky seems to believe the doctor. Sorensen suddenly arrives and asks Salomar to take off so that he can bring his samples back to their home world, and the doctor says that they can't take anything off the planet or they will all die. Salomar orders him and Sarah Jane to be removed, and after they are gone, he again tells Sorensen not to overstep his position. The Doctor and Sarah Jane are brought back to the quarantine chamber, holding the TARDIS, and Sarah Jane suggests that they leave. However, the Doctor says that they can't leave as Salomar and the others could potentially wipe out the universe. He then spots Sorensen's samples and examines them. The Doctor takes a sample of the crystals and places them inside a tin from his pocket. Suddenly, they hear the engines of the ship and realise that it has been prepared to take off. Unfortunately, the ship's power fails and they look out at the bridge window and see the translucent creature approaching. Sorensen is amazed by it and says that it is made of pure energy. Salomar orders the guards to go out to stop it and then sends for the Doctor and Sarah Jane as he thinks they may have something to do with it. They arrive and watch as one by one the guards fall prey to the creature and the Doctor tells them to use their force field but Fushinsky says it's not working. The Doctor tells them to link it to the ship's atomic accelerator and despite Morelli's protests that they will be too dangerous, they do so and the creature is driven back. The Doctor condemns Sorensen for his lack of caution when taking samples from the planet. Sorensen says that it was necessary to save their own world, but the Doctor reports that he should have found another way. Salomar agrees to get rid of the samples and the Doctor says that he will go and communicate with the creature to show them that they wish to leave in peace. Sarah Jane is kept behind and Salomar orders the drone to follow the Doctor who makes his way to the cave with the pool. The creature emerges from the pool, and the doctor tries to get it to stay back, but falls into the pool himself. Part 3 A shocked Sarah Jane begs the others to do something, but Sorensen and Vysinski says that there's nothing that can be done, as the doctor has fallen into the void between universes. Sorensen says that they need to leave, and Salomar agrees, but orders Sorensen's samples and equipment to be removed from the ship first. A shocked Sorensen angrily says that Salomar's sole purpose was to return him and his discovery, but Salomar retorts that he was only sent to find him, and that he refuses to push his men at any further risk. Sorensen says that his life's work will be lost, but Salomar ignores him. As they are arguing, Sarah Jane slips off the ship and makes her way through the jungle into the cave. In the quarantine chamber, Morelli and Dehan gather up Sorensen's samples and take them towards the exit, with Dehan complaining about the menial nature of the task. As they leave, they fail to notice Sorensen hiding in the shadows. After they pass, he goes into the quarantine chamber and takes one of the canister samples with him. Meanwhile, the Doctor falls endlessly through the universal void, powerless to do anything to save himself. Suddenly, his ascent stops and he comes face to face with the energy creature. A short while later, he emerges from the pool to find Sarah Jane waiting for him and she helps him out. She tries to help him back to the ship, telling him that it is preparing to take off, but he collapses to the ground in exhaustion. 
Unbeknownst to them, they are being observed by the drone. Their images are relayed back to the ship, where Vyshinsky cancels the launch sequence in order to help retrieve the Doctor. Salomar frustratedly objects, but orders the sickbay to be prepared. In his room on the ship, Sorensen, who seems to be getting increasingly more strange, dictates some notes about the samples. He suddenly clutches his head in pain, but when he approaches a nearby mirror, he sees that his eyes are glowing the same red as the energy creature. He hurriedly drinks a strange smoking substance from a nearby flask, which reverts his eyes back to normal. In the sick bay, the doctor is brought in on a stretcher and Vyshinsky starts to scan on him. He initially remains motionless, but Vyshinsky adjusts the stimulus from the scan and he starts to react. Salomar orders Vyshinsky to the bridge and as he goes, Sarah Jane thanks him for his help. The doctor wakes up and inquires about the samples and Sarah Jane says that they've all been removed from the ship. She asks what happened and he tells her that he managed to establish contact with the energy creature. The ship suddenly starts to shake and the doctor realises that he still has some of the sample in the tin in his pocket. Together with Sarah Jane, they make their way back to the bridge, where Salomar and the others desperately try to take off. The doctor reveals that he still has the sample of the antimatter, which is what allowed him to survive in the void. Salomar berates him before ordering Morelli to bring it to the airlock so that they can jettison it. Morelli passes the hand in the hall, and a few moments later, the hand hears his screams and goes to investigate. He sees someone run away from Morelli's body, which is in the same desiccated state as those on the planet below. Back on the bridge, Salomar says that even though they have broken orbit, they are still being dragged back to the planet, and the Doctor says that there must be antimatter still on board. He says they need to find and remove it as soon as possible, as the radiation it releases when contacting matter could destroy them all. The Han enters and tells him about Morelli, and Vyshinsky gathers a squad of men to go investigate. Back in his room, Sorensen returns from killing Morelli, but he is taken on a much more bestial-like appearance. He takes another drink of the smoking liquid, which returns him to his normal state. He then gets a call to join Salomar at the murder site. Once there, he tries to lay blame on the Doctor and Sarah Jane, highlighting their alien nature, and suggests that they try to go investigate the TARDIS. In the sickbay, Vyshinsky, the Doctor and Sarah Jane wonder how Morelli could have been killed, with Vyshinsky suggesting that the energy creature got on board when their force field was down. He then places Morelli's body in a tube and jettisons it into space. The doctor then requested Vyshinsky organize a medical check on everyone on board, saying that someone might be contaminated. Salomar then enters and holds the doctor and Sergei at gunpoint, saying that he wants to investigate the TARDIS. Vyshinsky tries to intercede on their behalf, but Sorensen insists that they are trying to sabotage his work. Salomar then gets a message to say that the ship has stopped moving and he leaves to go to check, taking the doctor and Vyshinsky with him, leaving Sorensen to watch Sarah Jane. Sorensen rants that the Doctor is wrong in his assumptions, refusing to listen to Sarah Jane's statement that he is a brilliant scientist. He grows increasingly more agitated, and an alarmed Sarah Jane backs away from the confrontation. Sorensen suddenly starts to struggle with the pain again, and Sarah Jane stands transfixed like she did in the jungle. Fortunately, Sorensen staggers away from the sick bay and makes his way back to his room. However, he doesn't make it in time and attacks the Han in the hallway, and Sarah Jane goes to investigate his screams. Up on the bridge, the doctor says that the ship will start to soon be drawn back to Zeta Minor, likening the experience with an elastic band snapping back. He insists that they need to find the antimatter on board, but Salomar again refuses to listen, and instead states his belief that the TARDIS is causing the fault. He leaves Vyshinsky in charge, whilst he forces the doctor back to the TARDIS. Just before the doctor opens it, they hear Sarah Jane screams from the hallway. Salomar looks towards the sound, and the doctor knocks him out before rushing to help Sarah Jane. He finds her in the corridor standing over the hand's body and he tells her that the creature that is behind the attacks is an anti-man, 
a hybrid of human and energy creature. Suddenly Salomar appears, and thinking that they are the ones that killed the Han, he shoots the Doctor in the face with his blaster. Vashinsky arrives and disarms Salomar, saying that they are not responsible for the Han's death, but Salomar refuses to listen and orders a pair of guards to bring them to the ejector pods in the sick bay. Back in his room, Sorensen drinks the smoking concoction again, but accidentally knocks the rest of it onto the floor. His eyes begin to glow red again, and he climbs into his bed. In the sick bay, Vashinsky refuses to eject the Doctor and Sarah Jane into space, saying that there is no evidence of their guilt. He struggles with Salomar when he reaches for the controls, but they accidentally activate the system, and the tubes carrying the Doctor and Sarah Jane start to slide into the ejector ports. Part 4 Salomar and Vashinsky continue to struggle, but they stop when there is a cry for help from the bridge via the intercom. They make their way to investigate, with Vashinsky reversing the ejector pods as they leave in order to save the Doctor and Sarah Jane. They arrive at the bridge to find the helmsman dead, killed by Sorensen. Salomar again states that the Doctor and Sarah Jane must be responsible, but Vashinsky says it is impossible as they were with them. He then issues a red alert throughout the ship, taking command away from Salomar. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane frees the weakened Doctor from the ejector pod and tells him about the Han's murder. The Doctor realises that Sorensen is the one responsible and that he is turning into an anti-man. He tells Sarah Jane to go to the bridge and tell them to seal all the hatches in, on the ship in order to trap Sorensen. He then leaves without saying where he is going. She goes to the bridge where Salomar taunts Vashinsky over the imminent crash back to Zeta Minor. She tells them about the Doctor's statement about Sorensen, and Vashinsky orders all of the hatchways to be sealed. As this is happening, the Doctor manages to get into Sorensen's room and finds the container holding the last of the antimatter. Before he leaves, he spots the flask that contained the smoking concoction and he pours it onto a small sample of the antimatter, changing it into a brittle, flaky-like substance. Sorensen enters the room and the Doctor tells him to keep back. He reveals that Sorensen has been so exposed to the antimatter that he will no longer be able to change back to his normal form after his next transformation. He then hands Sorensen the last of the antimatter so that he can dispose of it himself as an act of atonement for his hubris. On the bridge, as Sarah Jane and Vyshinsky are talking, Salomar takes a neutron accelerator from its housing in a nearby conduit and then holds them at gunpoint as he orders them to open the hatchways. Vyshinsky tells him that he will die due to the radiation from the accelerator unless he puts it back, but Salomar refuses to listen shooting a guard that tries to stop him. Sarah Jane urges Vashinsky to let Salomar go, and Salomar leaves, again mocking Vashinsky for his perceived arrogance. Meanwhile, Sorensen makes his way to the sick bay and prepares to launch himself and the remaining antimatter out of the ejector pods. However, he transforms at the last moment and gets out of the pod and goes into hiding as he hears someone approaching. The doctor enters the room and sees the abandoned antimatter. A call comes through from the bridge and he tells him about Sorensen's condition. They tell him that Salomar is hunting Sorensen with the neutron accelerator, and the doctor rushes to stop him. At that moment, Salomar, who is feeling the effects of the radiation from the accelerator, finds Sorensen in the quarantine chamber. He tries to use the accelerator on him, but the beast shield Sorensen clubs him to the ground, but gets bombarded by the radiation from the open accelerator. The doctor arrives a few moments later to find Salomar dead, desiccated like the others. The doctor reports this to the bridge and tells him to open the hatchways. He makes his way back to the bridge, using the antimatter to ward off several energy creatures. He gets there safely and has Vyshinsky replace the accelerator whilst he goes to close the hatchways. He says that Sorensen was bombarded by the radiation, and as a result, multiplied himself to create the energy creatures that now start roaming the halls. Vyshinsky gets reports from throughout the ship of the creatures attacking and killing the crew. He then notes that the ship is accelerating back towards the planet and that they will crash in less than 15 minutes. 
The doctor tells Sarah Jane to remain behind whilst he takes the antimatter to the quarantine chamber. There, he encounters Sorensen and uses Salomar's gun to stun him, allowing him to drag him into the TARDIS. Back on the bridge, Vyshinsky and Sarah Jane go to collect portable force field generators in an effort to keep the energy creatures out of the bridge. Inside the TARDIS, the doctor binds Sorensen and then takes off. However, Sorensen manages to break free of his bindings just as the doctor lands the TARDIS in the pool cave. He lures Sorensen out and after a brief struggle, forces him into the pool, throwing the antimatter in after him. Back on the ship, the energy creatures disappear after managing to break onto the bridge and Vyshinsky notices that the ship has stopped moving. The ship starts slowly move forward again and Sarah Jane wonders where the doctor is. Back on the planet, the doctor notices that Sorensen's body has returned to the surface and is now in its normal form and still alive. He takes the barely conscious scientist into the TARDIS and takes off again. Sorensen fully comes to and the doctor explains that he was released because the doctor kept his promise to return the antimatter. They land back on the ship and the doctor brings Sorensen up to the bridge. Realizing that Sorensen cannot remember the last few hours, the doctor convinces him that he abandoned the idea of obtaining power from antimatter and instead focuses his work on harnessing kinetic energy via planetary movement. Sarah Jane hugs Vyshinsky and thanks for his help and the doctor says they need to return to London as originally planned. End of the story. Now then, as always, once you've listened to my dulcet tones, we're going to listen to the equally dulcet tones of Trish as she brings us to the trivia spot. <laughs> I don't know if dulcet is the best way to describe our tones, but I'll take it. <laughs> the air date for this story is the 27th of September to the 18th of October 1975. The writer is Louis Marx. This is story three of four for Louis. We previously saw his work in Planet of Giants and Day of the Daleks, and we'll see his work again in The Mask of Mandragora. This is the only story written by Louis that wasn't a season opener. Mm. So usually he's a season opener kind of guy. Yeah. The director of the story is David Maloney. This is story seven of nine for David. We previously saw his work in The Mind Robber, The Crotons, War Games, Bits of Frontier in Space, Planet of the Daleks, Genesis of the Daleks, and we'll see his work again in The Deadly Assassin and The Talons of Wang Chien. The working title for the story was The Planet of Evil, rather than just Planet of Evil. I suppose it's not really a trivia spot to say that the story was inspired by Forbidden Planet, mm. and as well as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. you know, Forbidden Planet itself being inspired by The Tempest, and the Doctor does quote Shakespeare at one point in the story. According to Philip Hinchcliffe, they got a little bit of backlash over that, and I was like, it's a science fiction story in, it, in its purest form, do you know? So um, I don't think the backlash is justified. I think inspiration is allowed. What sort of backlash were they getting? Basically, they were told they ripped off Forbidden Planet. Affer. Like, ripped off is a bit much, like. As if, like, other stuff hadn't been ripped, like, as. Like, some, like, some of, like, really famous Western movies have been ripped off from eastern movies mm. so like or like inspired by yeah. so that's what you but also forbidden planet was inspired by the tempest yeah <laughs> so if anything they're ripping off shakespeare from a certain point of view and definitely from philip hinchcliffe's point of view this is really the beginning of philip's era on the show 
And what I mean by that is, even though he was the producer last season, the stories from Ark in Space, Optozygons, they were all commissioned by Barry Letts and Terence Dix. So even though Philip and Bob Holmes worked on them, they didn't commission them to start with. Uh, so this is really the first story that's commissioned and produced by Philip Hinchcliffe and the Philip and Bob Holmes duo. So it's 100% Hinchcliffe from here on out. Yeah, pretty much. Um, one of the ways that Philip actually contributed to this particular story is in the original script, Sorensen was meant to die after falling into the pit. He's meant to fall into the pit, and that was it. Um, and Philip thought that was a bit too grim for children watching. And so, and he also, like, from Philip's perspective, Sorensen was a victim of the planet's influence. He wasn't evil. So him just dying was sad rather than justified. So instead, they add the scene where Sorensen comes back as his true self. That will actually play in a lot into our character discussion because Sorensen is oh, yeah. is a victim. So, yeah, mm. discussion in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Is he also a dickhead? We will have to see. Mm-hmm. In terms of David Maloney um, and this particular story. So one of the things David Maloney wanted to do, and I'm really glad they didn't do it because it doesn't age well when you do, is they originally wanted Salomar to have a more Asian look with makeup and, you know, like sort of eye prosthetics to give him more of an Asian eye. They didn't go with that, thankfully. Mm. (laughs) Because, super racist. But the reason why was because David loved the idea that the future is multicultural. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we see that with Ponty, who is a black character. Um, we hear it kind of with Ranjit, mm-hmm. who um, we only ever we never see him on screen. We only ever hear his voice. I say we kind of get it with Ranjit because Ranjit is clearly meant to be a character of Indian descent or you know Indian ethnicity, mm-hmm. but is voiced by the very white Michael Wisher. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. a for effort. Yeah. So usually we don't focus too much on the sets in the trivia spot, but we have to talk about the set Mm -hmm. because the set for this story is freaking phenomenal. It's at one point there's a river going through it. It's fucking amazing. (laughs) The set was designed by Roger Murray Leach, who, you know, one of the best Doctor Who set designers that they have. And he really wanted the jungle of Zeta Minor to be imposing. And apparently, I'm going to put an apparently on this. Apparently, he wanted to create a contrast with Star Trek, who often used quite abstract sets. And he wanted something really tangible and that they could actually get into and move around it and stuff like that. I'd agree, yeah. Apparently, the way the jungle came to being in terms of set design was Philip Hinchcliffe had asked Roger Murray Leach to find out what sort of landscape could be done best in a studio because this is all studio. Now there's two different studios, BBC and Ealing Film Studio and you know what would work best because Philip hated the sort of shiny studio floors and stuff like that. He wasn't a big fan of that whole aesthetic and Roger was like I could always do a jungle that's just what they would do it. 
apparently the set was so intricately detailed and the, the shoot was entirely in studio the BBC were so impressed that they kept photographs of it and it was included in an internal BBC training manual as an example of excellent set design that's pretty fucking cool yeah Elizabeth Sladen tells a story on the DVD um, about how I think she said it was Roger or maybe one of the set dressers borrowed some of the plants <laughs> So he was having his back garden done and overnight he borrowed some of the plants and set them up in his garden so when his wife opened up the curtains in the morning it was all the plants oh, evil. Oh god, what a dick. <laughs> Which I just love. I just love it. I love it. It's brilliant. What a wonderful dick. <laughs> oh. Moving on, though, past the set. I'm sure we'll discuss the set a bit more when we're talking about our overall thoughts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on a bit. Um, this is the last story to feature the fourth Doctor in his original outfit. There will be a couple of changes coming to the outfit going forward. This is also the first story to feature the fourth Doctor behind the console in the TARDIS. While we've had the TARDIS on screen, we've never like we never saw Harry in the TARDIS. We saw Harry coming out of the TARDIS and going into the TARDIS. We never saw the console room. This is the first time we've seen the console room since Death to the Daleks, which was ages ago. <laughs> like, like that was like nearly two seasons ago. Fucking hell. Because it wasn't in Planet of Spiders either. No. It was just in and out and in and out. There was no, no console. There's also... The console that we see here is a new console. So this is the on-screen debut, although this story also has an out-of-order filming. So Pyramids of Mars, which is next week's story, was filmed before this week's story. Um, So technically, this is the first on-screen use of this console, but was first built for Pyramids. Um, And Pyramids has an error that we'll we'll talk a little bit about next week. Elizabeth Sladen has said this was her favourite story to work on. There's a number of reasons why. The set was one. Getting to work at Ealing Studios. She loved working with David Maloney. She loved where she and Tom were in their working relationship at the time. They got to ad-lib a fair bit. Like this. So uh, the Doctor gives the Shakespeare quote. And then later on they have like a Shakespeare back and forth about the Doctor. Like, oh, I met met Shakespeare once. A lot of that was just ad-lib between Tom and Liz. They were sort of at that point in their friendship. And also she really loved where the Doctor and Sarah were in their travels. Jo, this is what they do now. Mm. Joe was very settled in. So she actually, this was her favourite story. Her favourite story to make. On to our cast. So as Vyshinsky, we have Ewan Solon. This is the second and final appearance for Ewan. We previously saw him in The Savages, where he played Chal, the leader of The Savages. Salomar is played by Prentice Hancock. This is story three of four for Prentice. We previously saw him in Spearhead from Space, where he played Jimmy. And also in Planet of the Daleks, where he played Weber. We will see him again in the Ribos operation. Lastly, as Sorensen, we have Frederick Yeager. Again, this is story two of three for Frederick. We previously saw him also in The Savages, where he played Jano, the leader of the Council of Elders. So we have the two sides of the savages being played out again between Sorensen and Vyshinsky. And we'll see Frederick again in The Invisible Enemy. 
yeah, I knew I recognized Sorensen because like, like, he feels like he's been in it before. Like, it just like he has that familiar look to him. Uh, also, they're not major characters in it, but we do have a few returning extras. Uh, Ponty is played by Lewis Mahoney, who was the news reporter from Frontier in Space. Uh, he's also going to be in mm-hmm. Blink down the line. Uh, Dehan is uh, Graham Weston, who was in the War Games. He was Sergeant Russell, and uh, Morelli is um, Michael Wisher. Michael Wisher, yes, thank you. Because <laughs> I was like, it's Michael. I was like, yeah. what the hell is the last name? Wisher, <laughs> M- yeah, Wisher. Yeah. Uh, which again on the DVD special features. Because of course I listened to the audio commentary and we'll talk more about that later on. Philip Hinchcliffe was saying that once you know that Michael Wisher is Davros, anytime you hear him speak, except when he's doing Ranjit, which again, slightly racist, he sounds like a Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> like Morelli sounds like a Dalek. He he really, really does. Which and, is just the way Michael talks. Yeah. And like if you if you go back to like Ambassadors of Death when he's the news reporter, it's like yeah, this is how Dalek, you know, the six one news would sound, would sound. <laughs> so now that we have recapped the story and recapped our trivia, we're going to go on to the character discussion now. Normally, we have we talk about the Doctor, the companions, prominent characters, and villains. Is there a villain in this story? The planet? Kind of? I, again, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, because it's like, it's the nature of the planet. Yeah, like, I think I, the planet was, is the closest thing to a villain we get. Yeah. But also, well, we can like, talk... also, yeah. Is it the planet, or is it the planet is this nexus point for antimatter? Because I think the yeah. antimatter monster could be a villain on its own, the initial one. Hmm. But yeah, how about we do with our uh, humanoid characters first, and we can sort of go through yeah. them and see where we want to put them. Yeah, because there's a sort of like there's a very nature or natural element. To, to this particular topic which like is it's a fascinating discussion in itself like because mm. i've had similar discussions on different things so yeah. cool right um the the man himself the doctor yes all right so i'm just trying to think uh you went last week i think did you i don't remember okay you go this week yeah um <laughs> I really like the Doctor in the story. Hmm. You know, I kind of mentioned in trivia that Liz had said that she and Tom were on good. They were in a really good working space. Um, Hmm. And you can see that on screen. Um, I think what we get from the Doctor here is we get a sense into his otherworldliness. There's a bit Hmm. of a flub at one point in the story. So when the Doctor gets spit back out of the pool. Yeah. And he's like... A, I love his thing where he's like, you know, such and such theory of existence. Quite wrong. <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Um, mm. But then he goes on about how he promised. And Tom was meant to say, I gave, I promised as a Time Lord. Mm-hmm. And then Sarah Jane says, 
your promises at Time Lord. It was meant to be a sort of her. Instead, he says, I promise that she just brings in this idea of the promise yeah, of a Time Lord, which time seems Lord. weird coming from her side. But um, I love the idea we do get this other worldliness, like the fact that he's like, I can go talk to it hmm. and stuff. Also, his dedication to life. Like Sarah makes the point, they could just leave. This isn't their fucking problem. Yeah. Do you know, the TARDIS is there, they could just go, and he's like, no, not only does he want to stay to make sure these people don't blow themselves up or cause some sort of cataclysm on a galactic level, he will also be the negotiator for them. He will be the facilitator for them. Yeah. And then he also doesn't hold it against Sorensen. Now, I have a little bit of a question mark on that. I'll get a second, but at the end... He doesn't scold him. He doesn't berate him for what he's done. He realizes that Sorensen is back. He brings him back into the TARDIS. He brings him back and he gives him a new path to to investigate. I think it's like before he realizes what's going on, he berates Sorensen for his... But when he realizes to the extent of how Sorensen is affected, then he kind of walks his opinion of him back a bit. Mm. The one thing, though, where I think the Doctor was a bit too lenient and maybe he expected too much out of Sorensen is when he gives Sorensen back the antimatter to dispose of it, to send it back to the planet. You're taking a big risk there, Doctor. Like, just do it yourself. Do you know, I get that he was trying to give Sorensen this chance to sort of redeem himself or this chance to correct his mm. ways or whatever. I don't think it was worth the risk. And ultimately, it didn't work because Sorensen went off. Yeah. You know, the, the antimatter took over. I was like, why don't you just go get rid of it yourself? Get rid of the antimatter, then you only have Sorensen to worry about. I didn't, I didn't quite agree with that decision. See, this is the thing about that. Like, and I, 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 again, I was like, why the hell are you fucking, you know, trusting the, this guy to do it? But I suppose it's the thing is that if you force someone to do something, they might rail against it. But if you give them the opportunity to take the lead themselves, they might take the most logical course of action. Yeah, which is fine. But, I, but, but again, yeah, no, I agree that there is an element that's fine in everyday life. Mm. Because it's not like, you know, like fucking, it's not like he's a fucking moody teenager that you're trying to clean up his room, you know? Uh, there is a severe risk in this. And I would agree, yeah, that this was a, a it was an odd move. For yeah, the like, this isn't a little kid who took a packet of crisps from a shop and you're telling them they have to go back and return it themselves. Yeah. Do you know, like, I get that, you know, the doctor wanted Saracen to realize the error of his ways and whatever, but like, it was such a massive risk to have Sorensen do that. Like you could have like the doctor can get rid of the antimatter canister and then try and talk Sorensen down, you know, mm. help him get to that next stage. I just think it was a well meaning but misguided action. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I'd agree. I'd agree. Couple of questions. Why does the doctor have shackles in the TARDIS? <laughs> Do 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 you want like the logical answer or the salacious answer? <laughs> well, one answer is just kinky. Um, <laughs> but other answers, slightly scary. Why the fuck do you have those? Um, one of the things I love about this story is 
it's the Doctor and Sarah's relationship, and I'll talk about that more later on. But there's one little bit where they're obviously going through the jungle, mm-hmm. and he gives Sarah his scarf to hold on to so that he doesn't lose her. <laughs> at one point, obviously he's he's got longer legs and he goes faster than her, and so she's like choking him with a scarf, and she's like, "What's wrong?" He's like, "Nothing, nothing." <laughs> And then, like, two scenes later, he didn't give her the scarf anymore. He took the scarf back. <laughs> it's just such a sweet dynamic. It's lovely. Because I know that you, like, you watched the... I think you probably listened to the actual... I think your terms and what... Your amount of times you just watched this versus watched it with the, with the audio commentary. I think I've watched it more times with the audio commentary on than I have the story on this one. To the point where um, I had to watch part of this on BritBox. Because yeah. the DVD got scratched. And I think that was from how many times I've watched it. Jesus. <laughs> I th- you're the only person I've known to wear out a DVD. <laughs> uh, um, is this the audio commentary where it's like, you missed it, you missed the look of adoration? Yeah, yeah there's yeah. this lovely bit. It's where Sarah comes out. So when Sarah has her first sort of um, detection of what's happening on the planet. Yeah. So shortly after they arrive. And then when she comes out, you know, the doctor's asking her, like, are you okay? What was it like? Or whatever. And as they're doing that on screen, in the audio commentary, uh, they were talking about, uh, was Philip and Liz and um, Prentice Hancock were talking about, you know, just the set in general. And they're talking about this, that, and the other thing. And Tom just makes a comment. He's like, look at me, looking adoringly at you. And it, it sort of goes past the scene. And Liz is like, yeah, no, it's okay. He's like, no, you missed it. Like, no, I didn't. Like, no, no, you missed it then, and you missed it now. <laughs> Adoration wasted. <laughs> I think, I think that's what started like the. I think I would say like a very strong belief in the fan base that Tom actually was in love with Liz. And yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. And, Although, like this, yeah. this particular this particular audio commentary is weird from that perspective because he also says at one point that at one point he was considering adopting her. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 but that's—I think—that's just Tom's way. I think Tom did love yeah. Liz very dearly, um, oh, but I think, that, like, again, I'm just gonna put the call out. Right, if you have access to the DVD of the story, listen to the audio commentary because mm-hmm. basically, three men and Liz at several points they just go on about how amazing Liz looks <laughs> <laughs> and just what oh. she can do with her eyes. <laughs> I, that, that's uh it's it's uh, it could come across as incredibly creepy but it's actually incredibly sweet yeah. um i would highly recommend how about you and the doctor i've sort of gone a bit of a, a side rant there or a side round book one cool so again the thing that just kind of stands out is like just how he moved how tom moves through the story with such like effortless grace mm. it's like we I, we kind of said the same last week it's like you know it's almost like he's been there three plus years now mm. right and one thing i will say is that without kind of going into like the overall history of the show up until now mm. from what we have discussed so far i, I call like an amazing shout out has to be given to the fucking people that selected the doctors mm. because now bill grew into the role that we all loved yeah. and we talked about how that was a great character arc but for uh, Pat, for John, and for Tom mm. to fill the role or for, to, to be like the successor of whatever, 
and to actually make it like and they filled they slotted in perfectly because it was the whole thing they made the role their own while keeping some of the character traits and honoring the work of those that had come before them mm. whoever has done the casting for the fucking doctors after bill great great decisions yeah. and like tom was just carrying on that tom was carrying on that in terms of the actual doctor himself in this story um i love it like i love him like i love how calm he is in the face of danger like you know when he tumbles into the the nexus between mm. universes and when he comes face to face with the creature like i was a small bit disappointed we didn't get that scene yeah like, i would i, I would have liked it um um like i was brilliant his interactions with salamar and Sorensen, like his patience with salamar mm. is incredible uh maybe he actually enjoyed that punch when he knocks him out but with Sorensen, it's he goes from i would say not despising but the detesting the type of scientist that Sorensen is mm. To feeling sorry for what has happened to Sorensen, yeah, and it's 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 a good thing because it's it's quality doctor. That's what yeah. it is. It's quality doctor. Um, and but again, it gets the whole thing of like you know he doesn't say he doesn't advocate any violence to like you know inverted mm-hmm. commas here or quotation marks the villain of the story, the planet. Mm-hmm. He's not like you know Obama. You know like we have to burn whatever it's holding mm. us or anything like that or kick Sorensen off the thing it's as you say he is an advocate for life here mm. for, for everyone on in all interested parties so it's a great performance from Tom and it's a great doctor story yeah. I wholeheartedly agree now in terms of Sarah Jane Jesus Christ Liz can put the fear of God into you with her terror eyes <laughs> so this is one of those stories where there's a lot of close-ups on Liz's face. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of big eyes. The eyelashes help. Mm-hmm. But big eyes and this big connection and response. And some of it is sort of this sort of psychic connection almost that she has mm-hmm. with the antimatter. And I'll get to that in a second. But then you also have her watching in fear as the doctor falls down the pit or whatever. There's so much reaction from Liz. Mm. And like it's the effect the effect of like so whenever she senses the entity moving mm. through the jungle, it's like there's like the clacking of almost like you know, like a you know, a wind chime or mm. you know, the clacking of bones and the high wind. It actually reminds me of, you know, those little bobblehead creatures in Princess Mononoke. Yeah. You know, when it, yeah, that type of thing. Um and again, it just speaks to the fucking quality work of the design, you know, yeah. <laughs> like of of the jungle and everything. But she, no, she's great at really alerting you or drawing you into the actual sense of dread in the story. Mm. Like you feel scared because she's scared. Yeah. Um, but it's a great fucking. It's a good solid showing from Liz in, in this one, like in Sarah Jane. Mm. Like she's no qualms whatsoever about going through the spooky fucking jungle by herself. Mm. to the TARDIS and yep. to the Doctor um, willing to risk herself, like, oh, sorry, willing to risk herself to save people in the face of unknown danger. I mean like, she hears someone screaming in the ship. She runs to try and help. Mm. She runs to investigate. Uh, she's just brave, you know? Yeah. Uh, I also like her, her observation skills. 
like um, you know, the sense of why don't we go out the window because it's magnetically locked. Yes, but the power is low. That is my favorite scene. That is actually out of I think all of Tom and Liz together. Mm-hmm. That is my favorite scene to watch because that is, and this is one of the scenes that Elizabeth Sladen loved doing. That scene is quintessential Doctor and Sarah Jane. They're being held mm-hmm. prisoner, but they're quite blasé about it. Mm-hmm. Just lay back. And she's like, how about we just leave? And he's like, how? And he's kind of looking at her going, what the fuck are you on about? Like, we can't just go. She's like, out the window. He's like, it's magnetic. And it was there. She says, but the power is low. Like, she doesn't need him to come up with the escape idea. She's like, that's a magnetic window. The power is low. Let's just leave. Yeah. And, like, I love it because like, it really kind of reinforces the the story arc for Sarah Jane is that like mm. her natural her natural skill set as an investigative journalist is being reinforced by the adventures she's going on. Yeah. So the more you know she gets trapped or locked up, the more she can actually kind of spot the ways out yeah. or the ability or what she can use to try and help herself. Yeah, but that, that, that's actually so, one of my favorite scenes of the two of them, mm-hmm. like ever, which is weird because it's such yeah. a small scene, but it's one of my favorites. There's a few other that others mm-hmm. that crop up later on but like yeah. that one in particular i really like but like to your point like she just swans off into the scary jungle on her on her own yeah. no fear whatsoever like you know he's like oh we need this thing she's like oh, i know what it is i'll get it yeah. and but off she goes point, but to your point like the, it's the small scenes that actually kind of are the most memorable because like mm. one of my favorite liz and john scenes uh mm. like um sorry fucking uh caroline Ford and John scene is his, you know, eyebrows, and yeah. he, you know, does the, you know, that's Delphon for how do you do? Yeah. You know, you just like it's a simple and like her reaction to it. It's like it's a simple, it's a simple demonstration of how good the chemistry is. Yeah, and even like you know later on when they get back to the tardis, she's like, "No, we could just go," and she like pulls the key out of her pocket and is like, "I have it." And he's like, "No, we can't," yeah. and she's just kind of like, "Okay, yeah." Yeah, and I actually, no, I put uh, it out I, there. I, he said no. Fine. I meant to comment on when you made that point about, uh, you know, the advocate for life mm. and refusing to go. It's kind of like, you know, that weird inverse where, where we're gonna, we've seen it before and we'll see it again, where it's like, even if I wanted to, I can't. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, for Sarah Jane in particular, this particular idea of, well, we could just leave, this is going to be very important next week. Hmm. Because there's a very similar scene that happens next week. Very different ending to it. Very different tone. Um, I think it'll be interesting to compare them. I don't know. I know you watched them in order when you first watched them. But I certainly didn't. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to compare the two. Um, a couple of things as well about Liz. How she went around in those shoes. Blows my mind. Mm, like wedge. The way the way stra- Liz, the, the way Liz Slayton described it was like she was all frills and espadrilles. Is <laughs> the way she describes that outfit. Uh, apparently, that was David Maloney's doing. He didn't like what she wore in Genesis, and he wanted her in something more girly. Mm-hmm. So she had to run around Ealing Studios and run around the studio set through that foresty, swampy stuff in these big fuck off wedge heels. Um, so that blows my mind. Um, I love the fact that she leaves. She sneaks off the ship without so much as a buyer leave to go get the doctor. He fell down a hole. They're like, he's dead. Forget it. She's like, nope. And off she goes. This this ship that has the TARDIS on it is going to leave. Mm. And she's like, no, fuck it. 
I'm going to go get him. And the fact that she keeps trying to pull him up and to get him to go with her. And it's just like this constant like belief in him, I think is brilliant. The one negative I would say about it, mm-hmm. and this isn't Liz's performance. It's actually, I don't think they follow through enough on Liz's performance, which is her connection that she seems to have to the antimatter monster. The fact that she can detect it, even when the doctor doesn't. Mm. Do you like, the, every time she goes through it, she can feel it and seemingly further away than everybody else. And I was kind of there kind of going, wow, does she, she actually have latent, like telepathic powers? Like maybe that she can't broadcast, but like from a receptive level. And I'm kind of gutted they didn't, like, in the final episode, I would have liked to have seen them use that a bit more or for there to be more follow-through on that because she was great in those scenes and nobody else was doing it. But they, I don't think they followed through enough. It would be very easy to write that in because if you think about it, like, Planet of the Spiders has that psychic element to it. Mm. So, like, it would be very easy for her to have, like... A residual side effect from being possessed by the Spider Queen. Yeah, or like you know, we know that you know Lynx hypnotized her as well at one point. Mm-hmm. The Doctor played with her mind last week to get her to stop breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz gets hypnotized a lot. Yeah, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> well, Sarah Jane gets hypnotized a lot. Liz Layton doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just would have liked to have seen like it would have been maybe interesting if in the final like the final ten minutes, if he's like you know, we need to find. The real Sorensen, you know, mm. um, but the doctor's like, I can't just go out with all these antimatter monsters around. Like, I, I won't be able to find him, and you know, he's not showing on the scanners. And Liz is like, well, or Sergio, be like, well, I'll, I can sense it. You can't, mm. and she goes with him, do you know, and as opposed to being like the monitor showing where the antimatter monsters are passing through, it would be cool if like Sarah Jane had to sort of guide him. Because she can sense it and he can't. Yeah. I think would have been cool. Just because no one else reacts to it the way she does. So I'm like, you know, do more with it. You know? Have Liz do the whole I thing more. No one will complain about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not Tom, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly not you. No. No, certainly not me. <laughs> You want your, uh, so you watch it three times once for story once for audio commentary once just to watch the eyes <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a wonder about DVDs working <laughs> yeah <laughs> but actually like, when I was watching it last night I watched it twice yeah I know you did <laughs> in one sitting <laughs> yeah um, I, I, I knew you would with these, I, also, I also now know at what point in the story, the bits of audio commentary are like kicking, so I can fast forward through bits and be like, "Oh yeah, that's fine." They're just talking about, you know, Dip Molly's directing. Remember, I've heard that before. Let's get to this bit. Let's get to this bit. Yeah. <laughs> blah blah blah. Directing. Blah 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 blah. You know, set pieces. Blah blah blah. Adoration. Ah, there we yeah, go. There we go. <laughs> uh, anything else you wanted to add on Sarah Jane? No, just like again, good solid performance. Mm. So on to our character, our, our other characters, right? So we have Bishinsky, Salomar, and Sorensen. I kind of put them all as prominent character, to be honest. I kind of had Bishinsky. I had Bishinsky more in a companion role. I can see why you did. But I'm gonna make a comment about Bishinsky that uh, I'll explain why. So Bishinsky and Salomar, 
mm-hmm. play off each other quite well. Yes. And they go through a twist in my liking of them. At the beginning, I didn't like Vyshinsky. Yeah. And I actually quite liked Salomar. And then mm. around the end of episode two, they swapped. Where you don't yeah, like Salomar yeah. anymore, and I like Vyshinsky more. Tr- throughout, all of, throughout all of the second episode, the, the the change of opinion starts to formulate. And then it's by the end of episode two is, yeah, you, yeah. you switched over. So for me, I considered them all prominent. But I can kind of see why Vyshinsky is more companion in that he was never actively working against them. No, and he was, and the thing is, he was always. I won't say hi. He was definitely an advocate for giving them their say, yeah. and for helping them. And again, you know, he wanted to go help retrieve the doctor from the pool when he saw that he had come out again. Mm. Um, I think that he was so, like that, coupled with you know his just the whole thing of like they're they like you know for God's sake, man, see sense here. You know? Okay. He gets a hug from Sarah Jane at the end. We'll put him in companion. We'll put him in companions. Oh. <laughs> yeah. If that's how yeah. Sarah Jane saw him. We'll yeah. Him so we've sort of started a little bit about him. Um mm-hmm. why don't you keep going there with your with your thoughts? Okay. So no, I agree. At at the start he's a hard ass that you're you feel like you're not gonna like. But he definitely turns out to be the more rational and to an extent compassionate person on the ship. Especially in turn, like more so for towards Sarah Jane, mm. I think, because uh, again, uh, she's the only female in this yep. entire story. Um, not a new experience. <laughs> no, yes. not a new experience. No, but um, like obviously, there's um, he's <laughs> there's one point there where it's like like Mor- like Morelli, who seems like a pretty decent guy. You know, mm. it's like he gets fucked off in the space. It's like, well, I don't need to listen to this funeral music. I, like, that's actually something. And maybe it's just because of what's happened in my life recently. Yeah. I thought that was incredibly disrespectful. I thought he was an asshole. Yeah. That statement it, rubbed me the wrong way where he's like, we have to play the last rites. But that doesn't mean we have to listen. To him. And he sort of plays it as a joke. I'm like, hmm. a man has died. The least you hmm. could do is stand there and listen to his last rights be played in honor of him i thought that was incredibly fucking rude is one of the reasons why i don't like him but yeah because like he he asks what murray's denomination is mm. and then when he finds out he goes oh it's one of them yeah. it's like okay okay look fuck it there are certain religious groups like that you're like kind of go right you know the world could do without you but at the same time you know respect other people of, yeah, that, but like that fucking kind of parting line about, well, we don't need to listen to his fucking funeral. Dirt. It's like, just, you know, shunt him off. It's like, space. we have to play it, but we don't have to do it. Then why play it? He can't fucking yeah. hear it. He's dead. Yeah, and according, apparently, there's no one else of that denomination on the fucking ship. Uh, so. Yeah, I don't, um, like, and, you know, he didn't even let Sarah Jane and the doctor hear it. Yeah. There's no respect for it. He wouldn't go, you know, why, what are you doing? Or oh, we're playing the last rites. Would you care to listen? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, cool. We'll play them, but we don't necessarily have to listen to them. But like, yeah. it's just, like I said, for context, everybody, like our recording schedule has been a bit weird for the last weeks. I lost two extended family members in the space of three weeks. Mm. I am not a religious person in any way. Right? I'm not. But I just go to two funerals in three weeks. 
and the least you can do to honour that person is stand there quietly and let their beliefs be observed. Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. had I watched this at any other time, he probably wouldn't have bothered me as much. But mm. that line, like I already was kind of against him a bit. Um, mm. But that line really pissed me off. I think it would have been. I think it would just like stuck out just because of the decency of the whole thing. But given recent events, it yeah, it, yeah. it's understandable why it would strike a deeper nerve. Mm. But to finish off my thoughts on Vishinsky, as the story goes on, he really does call out Salomar's bullshit. As as it goes on, when like Salomar like, increasingly gets erratic and irrational. Mm. And he kind of calls them out on stuff. It's like, for God's sake, man, they were with us. How the hell could they have been responsible for this? Um, I also liked his partnership with Sarah Jane. Like him teaming up with her mm. was it, it was it, it was a nice. It was kind of sweet, you know, mm. um, because he took on this protective nature that kind of you know he doesn't really need to because mm. she's capable of taking care of herself. But at least he. He did the honourable thing, I suppose, of looking after the fucking alien on the ship, you know? Yeah. But the yeah, thing, that's my thoughts of Vishinsky. The thing of him with Salomar, mm-hmm. and I've had this thought, I've had this thought forever, ever since I watched the story the first time. So, Prentice Hancock, who plays Salomar, said that as far as he was playing the character, um, Daddy Salomar owns the, owns the ship. Or mm-hmm. is a very high up in the military. And that's why Salomar got control. So it's controller is, is his title. Mm-hmm. And that's why Salomar is controller. And Vyshinsky is there to keep an eye on him. You know, Vyshinsky is the old guard. You know, Keep an eye on him. Make sure he doesn't fuck it up type thing. My- what actually kind of, kind of reminds you of. Do you know what kind of reminds you of? Uh, in Sharp. Young, younger officers buying the higher commissions. Mm. Whereas older guys wouldn't have been able to do so. Yeah. So like you'd you'd have like Vishinsky who would be obviously he's the second in command, mm. but maybe it's just you know he 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 never got there, and then you have fucking upstart Salomar. Mm. But then again, I can see I actually again yeah like the idea of Salomar being actually put in second command to keep an eye on Salomar. Vishinsky being put in second command to keep an eye on Salomar. Yeah. yeah. My problem with it is, if that's his purpose. Vyshinsky is a terrible teacher. Mm-hmm. Maybe Salomar would be more res- receptive to his feedback if he didn't call him out in public every time. Mm. Think about it. Think of a Star Trek thing. Oh, Data and Worf. Data and Worf. Think about, but think just in general. Do you know? Yeah. Like taking you know Star Trek and Starfleet as this comparison, you know. Why would I be leading it? Why wouldn't Ponty be leading it? That is not a question you ask on the bridge. Mm. That is a side conversation you have either off to the side or in a ready room or in an ante room or something like that. And I think Salomar would have been much more receptive to Vyshinsky's advice and experience if Vyshinsky wasn't a dick in the way that he presented it. Mm. Because Vyshinsky comes across as just incredibly disrespectful. Or even if Salomar gave the exact same reaction behind closed doors, Vyshinsky would be, would, 
as opposed to being the lesser of two evils, he would be, okay, yeah, you are the right person to have in this particular scenario. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And I think I think that's the bit that sort of gets me with Vyshinsky is the fact that like you want to like him, but you can kind of understand why Salomar doesn't. Mm. Do you know? Like he undermines him in public. Mm-hmm. Which really doesn't do good things for the overall command structure. Do you know? You would never have Riker countersede, you know, Picard's orders on the bridge. That's a no, private, you... separate conversation. Yeah. Now, granted, wouldn't we work in that dynamic anyway? But you know what I mean. That's a private, separate conversation. Or in Discovery, you wouldn't have Saru question Michael on the bridge. That's a separate conversation that happens in private. Um. And even down the planet, like Ponty comes in and is clearly really panicked. And Vyshinsky's like, we're dealing with the power outage. It'll have to wait. It's like, well, A, that's Salomar's choice. And B, look up. You're dealing with a power outage. Your man's practically shitting himself. Mm. Like, I, I don't know. I think I think he has a big chip on his shoulder because Salomar's in control. Mm. And eventually he does take control back. Or he takes over control. He's like, I'm, I'm taking over command. At that point, Salomar completely goes off the deep end. We'll talk about it in a second. Yeah. And by the end, Vyshinsky is lovely. Yeah. But I think for the first half of the story, the guy's a bit of a dick. Mm. And he just comes across as like one of these, you know, one of the old guard who maybe he couldn't afford to buy his commission. But also, maybe he rubbed people up the wrong fucking way. And that's why he never was made controller. Because he's insubordinate. Because mm. whatever. And it's like, just because you're older and you have more experience doesn't mean you get to talk to people like that. I don't know, for some reason. And this is before we got to the the last rights bit. Yeah. <laughs> for, some, for some reason, he really bothered me. On the flip side, yeah. when shit started to hit the fan, he was great in control. He was great in command. He did really well in the latter half. But to start, that man was a dick. So on the Marco Polo scale, where do you rank? He's fine, I suppose. Yeah, I think we'll actually just do like a Polo to Vyshinsky scale. <laughs> <laughs> but then we have his other half, as it were, hmm. which is Salomar. Now, I don't know about you, right? For the hmm. first episode and a half, Maybe even two episodes. I don't think Salomar is necessarily a bad leader. No, and that's see, that's the that's the worst thing about Salomar, right? Is that he always he has at the at the start of the story this line of arrogance, this baseline of an arrogant attitude. Mm. I I think anyway, as things get progressively worse, the arrogance grows because he's stricken the command and that overshadows the fact that he's actually quite a competent leader yeah like he you know when like while he's quite dependent on the manual he's not tied to it like Vashinsky's yeah. like oh are we not going to do an orbital scan and he's like we don't have enough power have, yeah we go thought down that was great thought that you was know, a good idea um you know Vashinsky's like why isn't you know Ponty should be the one leading he's like no you're my second in command I want you to lead I want you mm. to investigate it he's actually not like he likes everything being in order though he has a plan and he follows through 
He has a job and he'll do it. External forces be damned. I loved the fact that he stands up to Sorensen. Because yeah. that's... You kind of expect it to be Vyshinsky standing up for Sorensen. That's the other thing that irritated me with Vyshinsky. Vyshinsky was a company man. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't rock the boat with Sorensen. Sorensen has friends high up and Salomar's response was, I don't fucking care. Members of my crew are dead. There are dead bodies on this planet. Yeah. Doctor or professor, you can fuck off with whatever you're doing. I have a job to do. Get my way. Do you know who he was coming across like a small bit for, mm. for the first two episodes? Colonel Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. Very much so. Um, I think where he starts going into the land of the stupid is calling the doctor out as an idiot for having antimatter in his pocket. The doctor was unconscious when you brought him on board. It's not his fault you didn't check his pockets. <laughs> mm. um, and obviously the more... Well, the thing with Salomar is that, like, I think there's a certain level of arrogance. I think that arrogance is also a false front for mm. panic. I think he needs things to be in order. Otherwise, he can't control things. Because the more control he loses, the more idiotic he becomes until at the end he becomes totally unhinged. Like his bit with Vyshinsky where he's like, go on Vyshinsky, what are you going to do? Give an order. Yeah. Do you know? Because he's just like, he's so, like, he he needs order. And when he loses it, he fucking loses the plot. Like, And see, that's the thing is like that. I think, like, why he harped on about the doctor, you know, being the doctor and Sarah Jane and the TARDIS being the cause is that like, he has tunnel, he has tunnel vision. And I think, like, okay, he has a, he has a certain ex, um, extent of adaptable thinking, mm. like the you know the, the we we can't do an orbital scan, we'll, we'll send an away team. I would say that's probably as far as his uh, adaptable thinking would go, because it's a case of no, the doctor and like you know the two aliens and their machine suit the narrative of what's going on. They're like you know they suit the whole thing because I can't critically think as to what else could be causing this fucking mm. shit scenario. But I still wonder I, if Vyshinsky had spoken to him in private would it have been different? Do you know, if Vyshinsky didn't argue with everything he was saying hmm. and question every choice he was making if he if they had conversations in private would it have ended differently? See, this is the thing now where I think it's all like... I think it's probably like a really good idea to have this and the target novelization because as we've seen, mm. target novelizations give you an insight into what characters are thinking or what the, you know, the motivations of their actions. We saw a lot of it um, in Ark in Space with Noah, mm. you know, we like and that and like we even had you no know, uh, the Crusade again, slightly different in terms of like you know some of the content. Mm. But we had some really good internal monologues for the characters and their bronze. Their desires. Yeah, <laughs> I, Jesus, I really should have brought that up. Uh, but their desires and their motivations. Um, so, yeah, like it's. I don't I, know. I, I do have the novelization. I don't know what bit though. I'd I'd need to read it in its entirety. I think you would, as opposed yeah. to like with with Ark, we were able to pick specific points where we wanted to see what the differences are. I think yeah. with Planet, and I do have it, um, mm. I would probably need to read it in its entirety. Yeah, because this is one of those things where it's like, it's a series of increasingly unfortunate events that leads to things. Um, but like, 
I, I Prentice is in that Christopher Lee school of actor in this in the thing of which is like the minute you see him, you're you're going to get fucking pissed off at him or not trust him or something. Mm. And I haven't seen this in a very long time, mm. so I actually forgot what happens to Salomar. And like for the first again two episodes, I'm like, all oh, right, is he going to be like the fucking Leftbridge Stewart where he's like an asshole, but he's a, he's on the side of the angels type thing? And it's like, and then but as it goes on, it's like, oh yeah, fucking of course it's Prentice being Prentice <laughs> or <laughs> Prentice being given the role of your Prentice mm. because it's kind kind of like in a Phantom Daleks, you know, you think Weber is going to eventually come good, but no, he's still fucking. A bit of a fucking tool, you know. Yeah, but like I said I think between Salomar and Vishinsky, there's neither one of them that I like completely. And my thoughts yeah. on them flipped at the in the first half. I didn't like Vishinsky. I thought he was, mm. you know, one of these sort of, you know, you know someone you described like the fucking old fossil who, you know, was like, oh well, the only reason I never got a promotion was because my daddy doesn't have all the money. He's like, no, it's because you speak out against everyone in public, you dick. And nobody likes you. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, no, just on part, like, you know, further reflection, I suppose, like, Vishinsky would probably fall into the prominent character section because, like, almost like, actually, do you want, if we're going with the analogy of Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, uh, Captain Knight. Mm. Yeah, like, in the sense of, like, like, he's all right. You mm. know, he's like, he does some good stuff, but at the same time, he's a bit of a mm. fucking dick. There know? is one scene, though, between Salomar and Vishinsky that. I kind of love because it it shows at his core kind of who Salomar is, which is when Salomar is sentencing the Doctor and Sarah to be ejected out to the vastness of space. Yeah. And um, Vyshinsky's like, I won't do it. And Salomar attacks him. Mm -hmm. Salomar doesn't try to get past him to push the lever. Salomar forces Vyshinsky's hand to push it down. He's like, I gave you an order. And you're going to fucking do it. Salomar could have easily pulled the lever himself. Yeah. But he made sure, like, as opposed to just pushing past, past Vyshinsky and slamming down stuff, he made sure that he slowly lowered Vyshinsky's arm. So it's Vyshinsky who pushed it forward. And then, of course, obviously they run off to see to the guy on the bridge. Yeah. And Vyshinsky starts running away and he's like, oh shit. And he runs back and he pulls the lever back to bring them back inside. That's kind of like like that's probably what Salomar's one sadistic moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it goes back to control. He gave you an order. Mm. He mm. could do it himself, but he yeah. gave you an order. He's going to make sure you follow it, whether you like it or not. Um, I just thought it was so funny because like the doctor's unconscious, he doesn't know what happened. Sarah Jane's awake. Mm. And she's being expelled into the vastness of space, and the fact that Vishinsky sort of remembers like. Because Vishinsky runs around, like, runs around the table or, like, the the loading bay or whatever. And then he sort of goes, oh, shit, like, and runs back to pull back the lever. It's like, dude, you should have pulled it back in as soon as Salomar stepped away. <laughs> Actually, that that sequence, and I suppose the Morelli sequence as well, I kind of pissed myself laughing because um, it reminded me of the end of Rat of Khan. You know, mm. when, and like, you know, it's just like Kirk going, of all the souls I've ever encountered, his was the most human. <laughs> just like the way he's like that weird voice break. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, so Sorensen? Sorensen is an interesting character because mm. 
I do agree with Philip Hinchcliffe that Sorensen is, by and large, a victim. Yes. However, mm-hmm. even at the very beginning of the story, yeah, we can see his obsession. Mm-hmm. He's already hyper focused, and like, I it begs the question. One question I had that we never get an answer of is, where the. When the fuck did he start drinking this anti-anti-matter coffee? Yeah. Because he's had it for a while. Mm -hmm. Did he have it, like, before we joined the story? Like, how long has he been in this almost possessed, obsessive state? Because he was like that at the beginning of the story. Yeah, so, like... Did... The fact that he should be the fact that he has it on hand mm. indicates that he has had it set before story begins. Mm. Now we know that he doesn't he isn't responsible himself for any deaths no. until until he's on the ship. Mm. Everything is the actual antimatter creatures mm. that are essentially get the fuck off my lawn. Mm. Um Yeah, so like, well, yeah, the reason why I find it interesting is because his possession, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. isn't the source of his obsession. No. Because the antimatter doesn't want to leave the planet. Yeah. Whereas Bishin, or Sorensen does really badly want to leave the planet. He doesn't care that people died. He just mm. wants, you know, his work to succeed. So it's like, what happens to him and how twisted he becomes, the fact that he becomes anti-man, that's being a victim. The obsession, though, is all Sorensen, I think, in many yeah. ways. Because, like, this thing, is Sorensen evil? No, no, he's not. Is he misguided? Yes. yes. And as a result, he comes across as an arrogant prick. Yeah. Because, and this is the thing, right? He wants to save his world. He says that their mm. world will, is like is slowly dying, you know, because their their sun is burning out. He wants to save his people, but he also wants his name in big fucking neon letters. Yeah. Anytime that that's going to get mentioned, the man who saved Monestra—that's the mm. name of the planet. Yeah. The man who saved things, and that's his whole thing. That's it's like I'm defining my legacy here, yeah. and like. It, we we've seen this particular brand of scientist mm. multiple times. I'm going to define my legacy. Only difference being, I don't think we've seen that particular brand of scientist be a victim. No, and th- th- this is what I like about Sorensen is that he is a very typical Doctor Who scientist. Forget the people that died, my accomplishments, my discovery. That's all that matters. Think like think back to Revenge of the Cybermen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my legacy or my whatever. That, right? A very typical Doctor Who, you know, yes, I'm doing this for the greater good, but I'm doing it. It's me that's important. I had this idea and I proved it true. But you've got the Jekyll and Hyde twist, Mm -hmm. which makes him sympathetic, which is so rare. And actually Mm -hmm. kind of reminds me probably the most of What's-His-Face from... Oh, what one was it? Patrick's first story. 
uh, or Power of the Daleks. Yeah. Lester. A little bit. Because Lesterson goes off the fucking wobbly end as well. But Lesterson well, at the he... start, like, but in, but in the sense of, at the start he was still a dick. But then he gets he goes off the wobbly end, which makes him more interesting. Like Lesterson goes fucking full Cthulhu cultist in the yeah. sense he starts talking like a Dalek. You yeah, know? but that's what I mean. That it it takes the sort of stereotypical Doctor yeah. Who bad scientist that we're used to seeing, and hmm. makes him interesting. The Jekyll and Hyde part is interesting because the fact that Sorensen knows he's doing it because yeah. he has this concoction to help make it stop but see this is the thing now right is that how to what extent does Sorensen knows what does Sorensen know what he has been doing does he know that he has to take this concoction to stop antimatter sickness or does he know that he has to take it to come back from being the fucking murder machine that he is slowly becoming he knows he, he has to take it from the transformation because yeah. There's one, I think it's after the one that Sarah Jane sees, mm-hmm. um, where he goes back to his room and he has the kind of the hump and he has the, his teeth are all yeah. fucked up or whatever. And he yeah. drinks the concoction. So he knows that he is still Sorensen in that moment. Mm-hmm. Does he realize the extent of what he's doing? Pro- possibly not. Because for, if, if you're going with the proper Jekyll and Hyde analogy, from my memory, now I haven't read mm-hmm. it in... Jesus, close to fucking 25 years. Um, I don't think that Dr. Jekyll is aware of what he does as Mr. Hyde. Mm. He know, he knows that Hyde exists, yeah. but I don't think he knows to the extent of the actions that Hyde takes. My, I'll tell you, my extent of knowledge of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he was fully cognizant of what he was doing. Are you going to say the page master? <laughs> The page master. <laughs> yeah, I am Penny Dreadful. <laughs> I have never read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I, obviously, it's a popular consciousness story, so I'm familiar with it in general terms. Um, I, I, speaking of Penny Dreadful, what a waste of a fucking like, story in terms of Hyde. Like, you know, cause I thought that would have been brilliant to actually bring in. I still think that's, a fa- I think that's a, still think that's a fantastic film. Which one? Page master. I think it's brilliant. Oh, Page Master is Page Master is brilliant. Patrick Stewart with Yeah. And who was who played um horror? I will check. Uh, but there's there's one really weird moment in that movie that like apparently I spoiled it for people. Uh, at the very end, you know, when Macaulay Culkin is running away, mm. you know, back to his home, Christopher Lloyd looks at him and just like in this weird smile and tilted the head. Mm. I was like. That just feels weird. <laughs> uh, is it okay. like Falcor? Is it like people making Falcor weird? <laughs> yeah, because like, you know, like I okay, I made a joke. I'm sorry about this, right? I made a joke which was because we, we watched Page Master mm. and then we watched Never Any Stories. So I said, mm. you know, Christopher like, oh, that's what a pedophile looks like. And then Falcor comes up with the line, I like children. I said, correction, <laughs> that's what one looks like. <laughs> All purely yeah, meant was, in jest, obviously. In jest, absolutely. I was never allowed to make comments on movies again. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, it's I. Uh, I had a feeling that it was Frank Welker. Uh, Frank Welker is probably the greatest, one of the greatest voice actors of all time. He is 
Nibbler from Futurama. Mm. He is also uh, the original G1 Megatron, uh, uh, Starscream, Rumble, Frenzy, Ravage. Uh, He does Abu. They were all Transformers, right? They were all Transformers. Transformers. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I, I think out of the original 13 Decepticons, he voices eight. Do you, um, do, do you all know how I know that? Oh, because of the intro to Dan and Paul's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned a name that gets mentioned in that. Like, oh, I know yeah. that. Uh, he does the animal voices for Abu in the Disney's Aladdin. Mm. Uh, but I think probably you might know him as Fred from Scooby-Doo. Oh. Yeah, I would try I, I would do all of that. To to <laughs> yeah, to get to Fred. <laughs> um he he's incredibly prolific, like mm. incredibly. Uh but yeah, he was horror. Yeah. We've got off on a bit of a tangent. Um Sorry. point being <laughs> watch Page Master, everybody. Yes, it is it is a fantastic film. Our recommendation of the week. Um <laughs> I know exactly where we are. We're in Baskervilles. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> But circling back around to Sorensen, mm-hmm. he's a character like at the end of it, you don't like him because he is still that obsessed with. I had this great theory, blah blah blah. Um, but you're like, okay, let's let's, let's just we're just gonna lift your train up and just put it on a slightly different track. Yeah, and best of luck. Yeah, take your crazy off in a whole different direction. <laughs> but best of luck. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. Because yeah. he's clearly a genius. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He just needs to be directed in a different different direction. Yeah. He's the Sheldon Cooper of the Doctor Who universe. <laughs> a little bit, so. yeah. A little bit. Cool. So, we come to our overall. Mm-hmm. I believe I went first last week. Yes, so I will go so first. So I'll hand this it week. to you. Yes. Cool. Uh, also, just re- remember that Leonard Nimoy does the voice of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I distinctly remember because he has his Leonard Nimoy voice. And then he just goes, I'm Mr. Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> when he takes the potion and it's fucking, yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got to watch that movie soon, I think. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic So, but this, mm-hmm. right. It is Alien. Meets Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I haven't seen For Blood and Planet in a very long time. I've always seen it once. So I kind of forget that there is, you know, certain elements of it. And I can see where the connection is here in terms of, like, the translucent monster that appears from the shadows. Mm. Because that is ego, I think. I think that's what it was meant mm. to be. Um, but there's also the element of, like, the pulp adventure trope, you know, do not take the sacred item. Mm. Um, so... Like I like that. I, I I like the spooky aspect of that kind of shit. Uh, but yeah, really good performances all around. I thought you know, um, good returning cast in terms of uh, Frederick Yeager and Prentice Hancock. Uh, Ewan Soul, I could barely remember from the Savages because I suppose like look, none of the Savages really exists yeah. in terms of like motion, whereas um, Frederick Yeager as Jago is mm. very prominent. Um, Great performances all around from the supporting cast and obviously our two regulars. Uh, fantastic production values. Mm. Like, the planet is fucking incredible. And even, like, the antimatter monsters, like, the way that they're realized is 
sensational. Mm. It's so well done. I love it. Um, there's one downside to this, and mm. I don't think I can move past it. Okay. Is the ending. The ending is a bit too upbeat in the sense of, okay, prior to the start of the story, we know that the antimatter creatures themselves from the antimatter universe are responsible for the death of Sorensen's crew. Yeah. Crew. On board, though, Sorensen is responsible for the deaths of three people. He kills Dehan, Morelli, and Salomar. Mm. No. In what? And if you wanted to be really kind of vindictive, you could attribute at least fucking 10 more deaths from his duplicate anti-men versions. Now, because we don't know the extent of how much Sorensen is, you know, cognizant of his actions, we can't, like, it's okay, okay, can we blame, blame? Can we say that he did this? Can we say that it was just, like, again, he was completely in the, it was the other Sorensen that was doing it? It's not addressed. It's a, it's the it's the kind of the comedic you know uh, absent-minded professor like oh no this is, of course professor this is the course of action you decide to take you you didn't want to do antimatter at all and it's like okay there has to be an official report about this like there has to be something to acknowledge the fact that a lot of fucking people died after, like during this event and like I get like, even if say look we'll cover it up or mm. something along those lines to address the fact that people have been killed you know Mm. and like whatever about Salomar Salomar unfortunately I think his increasing paranoia and mania brought about his own end but guys like Morelli and Dehan like as as Dehan kept fucking saying we're just you know working stiffs Mm. so because of that it I'm going to give it a 4.5. Mm-hmm. Like, just that that ending, it's just a small bit too upbeat for everything that we've seen so beforehand. Cool. So, my thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to address your thoughts on the ending, actually, before I circle back around to mine. Okay. Because I have a nitpick, but my nitpick isn't that one. Okay. Cool. My thoughts on that were, we talked about how much is Sorensen aware of. Mm. There's being aware of and being in control of. I think the general acceptance by everyone on board was that Sorensen was not in control of his actions. Whether he was aware that he was doing them or not is irrelevant. Yeah, sorry. But Sorensen was not in control of his actions. So I didn't see any need for that to be explained. The fact that Sorensen returns from the pit as his true self, that was the explanation I did. That was it. And the fact that he doesn't remember what happened on the entire thing once he's gone through that process I'm like cool Sorensen is not liable for the deaths because it wasn't him it was the antimatter Mr. Hyde version of him mm. so that didn't bother me as much I can understand why it did bother you though yeah, I can understand it because even if it's a case of like where like Vishinsky is kind of like you know what's he doing like and the doctor was like it's best to leave like sleeping dogs lie or or mm. the, for the doctor to advocate for him as he had like you know advocated like you know as I said earlier on as the story progresses it goes from detesting Sorensen to feeling sorry for Sorensen yeah so like even if he had just like advocated like, in private 
while you know Sorensen is off doing his own little. Oh, absolutely, I can harness you know kinetic energy or something like that. Yeah. That, that that just for me is yeah. I think it's just like I said. I just assume that everyone felt the same way about Sorensen. Do you know? Mm. And so him coming back as his normal self, everyone took that the same way. But I can understand how maybe it would have been better to explain it. My nitpick was around Sarah's ability to sense the antimatter monster. I think there was a mm. missed opportunity mm-hmm. to have her do more, particularly in the final episode. Yeah. Um, I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity there. However, I kind of get them wanting to give Tom center focus on that and whatever. So it's a nitpick. It's not a problem. What I'll say about the story as a whole, though, is I loved it the first time I saw it. I love it now. I've loved it all the times I've watched it in between, um, which is a lot. Although, like, when you guys realize, like, we've been doing this podcast now for how long? Uh, just over two years, or coming up in two years. So I haven't seen the story in two, in two years, years, which for me is rare, because yeah. usually this is like, this is a, you know, once a year, I'm going to watch Planet of Evil type thing for me. Yeah. Um, the atmosphere, mm-hmm. the set design, like those two things on their own, like this is a horror film. Like, it, 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 yeah, is, it is. Like, it, this is a horror film and it is shot like a horror film. The Doctor and Sarah Jane, I love their dynamic. I love where Tom and Liz are in terms of bouncing off of each other. I love where the Doctor and Sarah are in that he trusts her to do certain things. She can call him up on things. They bounce well off of each other. I think that's fantastic. The guest performances, I actually thought the guest performances were really good. I have seen comments online where people thought Prentice was a bit over the top and that he didn't land his character well. I don't agree. No, I thought he, I thought Prentice did from start to finish, he did a great job. Yeah. Um, I know that the antimatter monster, like, Philip didn't like the design of the, not the anti man, like, not the Sorensen duplicates. He didn't mind those. Yeah. But the weird fucking hammerhead frog thing. Yeah. He didn't like it because he wanted it to be more mobile and it seemed very static. It doesn't bother me. It, it, it no. it's scary anyway. I don't care. Um, mm-hmm. I think Anti-Man in terms of Sorensen's makeup was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really good. And I really love it. Like, <sighs> but like If you compare the Anti-Matter Monster from this story mm. to the Anti-Matter Monsters we saw in the Three Doctors, because yeah. that was also the Anti-Matter Universe, they're just big fucking fleshy weird blobs. Yeah, I like there's this a, much better. <laughs> there's an element of the unknown. There's an element mm. of mystery. Yeah. Which is why and, it works so well. Yeah, you know, well, people say that, like, oh, they ripped off Forbidden Planet or they ripped off Doctor Who Missile. I consider this to be what Doctor Who does quite well the perfect homage to classic science fiction. Yeah. And I think they do it brilliantly. Because, like, again, right, this is the thing I was like, if you're going to fucking slate this, then Jesus Christ, you're going to, like, in two years' time, you're going to have to fucking slate Star Wars for the amount of fucking Akira Kurosawa shit mm. that that took influence from. You're going to have to rip off The Magnificent Seven, considered one of the best Westerns of all time, again, taking from fucking Akira Kurosawa. This is the thing. It's nothing wrong with fucking paying homage mm. to another classic thing. But it's like, you know, Star Wars, you know, you're saying Akira Kurosawa. Also, Hero's Journey. Do you know mm-hmm. Harry Potter, the hero's journey, Percy Jackson, the hero's journey. The hero's journey mm-hmm. is a storytelling motif. Yeah. Do you know? So that I take issue with. Is I had I usually don't look at other people's um comments, but I was curious about this one. 
and most people like most reviews i've seen online rank it really they're like oh you know it comes between zygon and pyramids it's so mediocre i'm like were we fucking watching the same story <laughs> It's brilliant. Like uh, I've been trying to beat her in the butch because I gave it a five because I love mm. it. I have always loved it. Mm. Um, but like, it like, if if even if you don't want to take like this story, like mm. I recently saw a thread where like someone had recent had just watched the Green Death and they mm. thought it was fantastic and it was Joe going out on her own merits and it was a brilliant story and you had a lot of people were saying yeah oh it's great great and then in comes me the fucking bull into the china shop based on when we watched it kind of going mm. actually uh, for a joe story it's kind of fucking poor because it sends her back to square one again mm. like it takes away all the awesome character development we saw and it makes her back into this bumbling fucking fool mm. which was unfortunate so like it's like that the thing is like you know why we think this is a fantastic story we differ slightly on the ending but we still appreciate the actual was the preceding fucking everyone what are we doing like the like oh like oh the 96 minutes that are there we agree on the fucking first 95 yeah, <laughs> yeah. no and like for me it's a case of like you know i joked at the beginning like oh i don't want to give every sergey story a five and i haven't but like no I don't see why people would rank say this is mediocre compared to terror and pyramids are just coming next week um I don't see this as mediocre compared to those two. I definitely not coming off Zygon. Like I'll be interested now to see how Pyramids stacks up now that we've watched them in order. But like when you come off Zygons and like the Hitchcock esque nature of Zygons into this sort of classic horror feel, I'm like, this is fucking brilliant. Like Yeah. And look, we've 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 said multiple times that this is probably our favourite era. Of who the Hinchcliffe era is fucking a fantastic era. Yeah. For me, follow uh, it, it comes first, followed second by Verity's era because mm. I love the first sixteen, uh, or first seven, even first seventeen, mm. uh, and then Russell T Davis, Russell T Davis's first era, mm. like that's where the way I rank. But Phillips era is the perfect blend. What I love in science fiction, it is yeah. elements of horror, it is elements of comedy, it's drama. It's action, it's excitement. So I don't see the harm in us ranking. If we rank everything fucking really high, we rank everything really high because we. It, this is our our favorite era, and this is what we want to cast out into the world. Mm. It, but we've also stuff that in eras that we didn't like, we've ranked really highly or spoken well about certain aspects of it. Yeah, certain parts of the John Wiles era, which we fucking don't like. John <laughs> Wiles, we liked aspects of his era. You know, so a little bit. um but yeah i think for this story again you know like i mean you know i said it before we went into liz's era i would call it the sarah jane era i said it before we started tom's run you know we are looking at these stories from a different point of view than what we looked at them before Mm -hmm. absolutely we're looking at characters from a different point of view than we've looked at them before and i you know it would kind of suck if my favorite doctor who story was no longer my Thankfully, still is. It still is. <laughs> and next week we're gonna we're gonna have the same problem next week because, like, when we did the initial run through of pyramids, pyramids yeah. I had a certain score. Mm. Will that certain score stay intact? I can't and... remember what my score was. I'm gonna have to double check for next week. Yeah, because I don't remember. Not, we're, not, 
we're not going to say anything. We're not going to give it away. However, I think I have seen a, I've seen a couple of requests on our Twitter to re- I guess <laughs> release the original edit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we probably will do is we'll release the re the, the <laughs> we'll release our Lucas cut on Monday of Pyramids of Mars, and we'll release our theatrical cut on f- fucking uh, Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, we'll do a proper episode of it as normal, yeah. and then we'll we'll do we'll do. I, I I haven't even listened to that since we first sent it to Norman and John. I don't, I don't even yeah. know what it sounds like. Yeah, do I so still even the, have it? This is the important it's, part. It's it, it, it oh, it's in the folder. It's in the folder. Yeah, yeah it's in the folder. Like, um, um, I don't know if I have it on my hard drive anymore, but it's still in the folder. Yeah, I'm, I yes. just I just had a, a double check there on on Twitter, and yeah, you've got you've got a half measured pod coming in straight away. Yeah, <laughs> and Norman right there behind them. So yeah, cheers, guys. <laughs> Fuck it. You don't forget you asked for this. Oh. Anyway, um, I didn't write an outro for this episode, so fuck it. <laughs> we'll just okay. say no. Next week we have. Pyramids of Mars, times two. <laughs> times two, yes. <laughs> the master than the original. Yes. <laughs> Until then, bye.